0: Hey peeps, just a quick one. There are so many shows happening (laughs) over the course of this. Uh, second half of this year, that I'm vomiting my mouth a tiny bit uh, just looking <laughs> at it, really. August the 26th, we're going to be in Brisbane at the mighty QPAC. Can't
1: wait for that. Always An love Emotional home home t- home t-
0: homecoming um, for Lee Sales. Hometown crowd. Sales, always love it. And then. We're going west, baby.
1: <laughs> yeah, I cannot wait. Can, for that. I know you it's can't. It's been a long time since it's we've been It's a full
0: Lollapalooza. To- we're going to Perth on the 24th of September. And then. <gasps> On the twenty fifth, this is a Jeremy special because he was just like, man, there is the most beautiful new theatre in Albany. <laughs>
1: That's he. It's totally driven it by is. Jeremy that we're the Albany up there.
0: Entertainment Centre. He's like, ladies, it's so beautiful, you got to go there. We're going to Albany, and I'm like, are we? And we are. <laughs> We're going to Albany. We are. It's
1: going to be very fun. I can't and wait.
0: I mean, it's, yeah, it's a part of the world. I feel like I never spend enough time in the West. I always go there for work. I like do one thing, enjoy the fact that I've somehow bought myself three hours on the way over there and <laughs> can turn my phone off on the plane. I love that. But then I'm always going to come straight back again. So not this time. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be fantastic. Can't yeah, wait. it's going to be awesome. And then we've also got Melbourne for the first time since that. Hilarious one where I lounged on a grand piano and, oh, and wore Haim that Hall, um, yeah. dress where people can see my boobs. And, oh yeah, yeah that, that was, was great. I mean, yeah, can't promise yeah, the same again this time. That <laughs> was the time of the Warney Reproduction Bowl. Remember? That was. I can't remember if that was that one or a different
1: one in Melbourne. Know, it's it's all it, a blur. it was all. Um, it's all a shame. worn scented
0: blur, and it'll be great
1: to do a show in Melbourne because we haven't been there yep. for years. So that can be not awesome. wait.
0: And there's, I think, also an Adelaide date before the end of the year. There well, is. I know there is. It's the twenty fifth of November. November. I don't know if we've announced that yet, and but hey,
1: consider this an announcement. And there's Canberra in December as well. So we've got. As ever. We're trying yeah. to make up for lost time and shows that we've missed all Can't wait during. to your
0: whinging. You're supposed to be having all this time off. You're like, oh <laughs> my God, I'm essentially I'm a travelling showwoman now. Um, Canberra will be the 17th of December. So just keep that in your diaries.
1: Now, guess what the first book is that I've been reading since I
0: finished work? Okay, I'd love to know this. What is it? Uh, Steve Toltz? No, has he no. written another one? No, No, what?
1: it's the palace papers by Tana brown oh god all right have yeah i can totally
0: the- no i haven't but i absolutely can see why you would be drawn in that direction yeah. and i'm quite keen to go there myself it's
1: funny because anyone who knows me knows that the one story i've been absolutely terrified would happen during my reign at seven thirty was the death of the queen because mm-hmm. i didn't want to have to anchor that because i feel like it's going to be just very difficult. So it's really strange that the first thing I've done is gone and immersed myself in a whole lot of research about the Queen now that I don't actually need to be worried about it oh, at all. You're getting a callback. But I, I kind of, a friend had said to me, "Oh, this is a really good book. And I kind of started it and thought, eh. I is don't that, really care that much about these people. I don't really feel like I need to know that much about more about them. And then it just hooked me in completely. And yeah. it was the perfect holiday read. Tina
0: Brown's writing
1: style is so hooky so, and engaging. I'm about to she's ask such a clever massively
0: writer. stupid question, and I agree that she's a very clever writer. She's sort of a genius of magazines and media. Yeah. Why is she an expert in the Queen? Well, I think she's just
1: kind of. She wrote a book called The Diana Chronicles. I think mm. she's just massively plugged in, and she has great contacts in the UK well, and in New York. As Imagine well, what there. that contact
0: work would be like. Oh. You know how, like, if you're a police reporter, it's like going down to the police club, <gasps> sinking eighty tinnies, and like whatever. <laughs> what would be like working the royal rounds be like? Oh, you know, dropping it'd just your be card, being in cucumber cucumber box at Wimbledon and yeah. being
1: invited to places with toffs, and you know, she obviously has a good inside track on all of this stuff.
0: Oh, how good was Prince? What's his face like having to have his <laughs> is covered when he watched Nick Kyrgios play. <laughs> God, I got a throb of national pride out of that. <laughs> I'm like, That's um, right, mate.
1: But her analysis too of what drives them and, you know, the relationships and stuff, it was just very, very interesting. And also because I'm not that interested in them, I realised that. So, for example, it, I didn't, you might know this and maybe it's well known, did you know Prince Harry's
0: a real hothead? Sometimes Lee Sales. <laughs> I just, like, you're a well-read and a smart woman and then every now and again she'll go, like, what's this car called, the Tirana? Or, like, you know, what was that, like, thing so that you'd that never well, heard of the other d- Is that well-known that he's made? I just, are you serious? I'm completely serious. I didn't this know. This is the guy who wore the Nazi kit to the birthday party, <laughs> or like you know, stripped naked while playing pool while people were taking pictures. I didn't know You're any just of this. Yeah, tiny bit impulsive. Not just no. hadn't registered that I over had the had
1: years. I had no idea that he that he was like impulsive and hot headed and Doki, intemperate, Doki. and that that's his reputation.
0: That uh-huh. he goes off and. Uh-huh. No, I, I didn't know that at all. You are the best. So is that you should
1: be that's well known.
0: Preserved it? in aspect in a museum <laughs> or something. Here's a woman with a brain of the size of the planet who occasionally missed some really obvious things. What was that thing that you'd never heard of the other day that like Gwen was talking about? It was something like, you know Brillo pads or something. It was something, I can't no, remember what it was. So just it's pads, some yeah. incredibly common household object. You're like, oh. really? <laughs> wow. No, I can't yeah. even remember what it was. But, yeah, I didn't
1: know that about Harry. And then she kind of explains really well, you know how it's split into the like, oh, Kate Middleton's the saint and Meghan Markle's was the mm. horror head. She explains really well why Meghan Markle might have been perceived as a horrorhead. and it's to do with culture clash between. Racism. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. What, it's what, to do what with- could it be? Culture clash between American celebrities and how they view the role of the people around them in terms of their Mm -hmm. stylists and their advisors and stuff. They're all to revolve around the sun that is you as the celebrity and they are to do what you want and and to facilitate your life. Whereas the people surrounding you in royal life, their primary interest isn't you. It's the institution. The institution, yeah. Yeah. And so she explains that incredibly well. Yeah. And so you kind of get this sense of, right, okay, I can see how Meghan Markle – May not have been a horror head, and also just the directness with which Americans speak versus the yeah. sort of so she might say, you know, I don't like this dress. Could we get a different one, please? But they're what they're used That's to. That's become would the, it be terribly like- problematic. If we had a couple of other options, Like, do apologise for putting people to any trouble. Like it's that kind of.
0: Thing? yeah because well, the foundation story of her being difficult seems to be something that nobody's ever really quite worked out what happened but it involves a bridesmaid's dress yes. where she made a fuss or and somebody cried I can't she remember didn't what get it did. to the bottom of that right yeah well, because she talks about like, it but she, she, she probably said, just yeah. went oh that's a bit fugly and then decades and centuries of royal history then coalesces you know around yeah. this incident where she was rude about a dress and made someone cry yeah
1: it's 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 very I did interesting not think to... much of that wedding dress
0: while we're talking about it. Kate Middleton's. No, no, Megan hers Markle's. was nice. Meghan oh, Markle's nice. No, no, no,
1: just, just, I hate Kate Middleton's not. style generally. Oh,
0: yeah. so no, I to be absolutely clear, liked Kate Middleton's wedding dress. Did right. not like Meghan Markle's. Okay, I thought it didn't fit properly.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I, I it didn't strike me one way or the other. I thought I've, yeah, but I. You didn't, didn't
0: even notice that Prince Harry's a hothead. So I mean, <laughs> I just think journalistic observation. 1.0. Uh, <laughs> I find it really amazing that
1: Kate Middleton is held up as a style icon because I absolutely don't like her look. I'm sure yeah, she's but a very nice person. Remember girl, but...
0: that these people have these kind of completely crazed rules that they have to live by, i.e., yeah. I give you the nude tight. They all oh, have yeah. to wear nude hose. Yeah. Now, who wears nude hose?
1: Yeah, I have I mean, heard
0: that. And just imagine living like that. Yeah, but that. there is a convention that a naked royal leg is never to be seen. So even oh. if you're in like a summer nude hose, oh. yeah, how do you wear open toe shoes? Because you never can, right? Yeah, that's why they're always you, wearing the clompers. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, a smart person would invent a sort of like a like the fingerless glove toe version for yes, Royals, like yes. where you just, you know, yes. so you've still got a bit of toe cleavage, <laughs>
1: but so, what do you think?
0: So That's a Tina, little project for you in retirement. So Tina Brown mm. has,
1: there's lots of nice juicy colour and detail and stuff, but then she also explains, again, stuff that I'd never really dawned on because I haven't thought about it very much, but talks about it's just like reasons. joins the range of weird things <laughs> that you've never thought about. <laughs> what, what other qualities that make, somebody suited for royal life. And so she talks about, for example, one of the reasons that Camilla has won over the Queen's approval is that she had years and years and years and years years of just having to keep her mouth shut and not defend herself Mm. when she's been called, you know, the old bag and just absolutely Mm. pilloried as this Mm -hmm. evil, evil Mm -hmm. person. And Camilla has just... Kept her mouth shut. Not tried to defend herself. Just gone about her business, and that gone really, horse riding. Gone horse riding, and that pretty much is the definition of what's required as a royal: is to keep yeah. your mouth suck shut up. and suck up everything. And then Kate Middleton, same. Waiting for William to kind of you know settle yep. down. She's just you remember the whole weighty Katie yep. palava. Yeah. She's just done that. She's kept her mouth shut. She's not made a fuss. She's not made a scene. And so that's the kind and
0: of- And done sort of behind the scenes briefing and all that sort of stuff, which yeah. would be tempting, wouldn't it, to get a journo on site and just say, well, yeah. you wouldn't believe what- <laughs> Exactly. Whereas you just have to like kind of resist. And so it
1: talks about, say, when Meghan comes in, and again, a kind of American style, things would be written about her and Harry, and they'd be like, oh, this is outrageous, and that cannot be allowed to stand. And the palace would be like, well- we're not putting out a statement about it because mm. it's not what we do. We don't buy into it, and so you know, just that kind of clash. Um, so again, I hadn't really thought. Oh yeah, I guess I can see why Camilla has ultimately. You know, the Queen's quite fond of her, apparently. So, and it's because of that. Look at you. You're you're <laughs> you're. Anyway, I bought the Diana. Conicals you're gonna be, on the
0: strength of it because oh, I loved it. You're going to be the um, special guest on the broadcast now to talk about. Oh yes, God. you are media management. <laughs> Hey, you brought me on 7.30 once to talk about handbag placement oh, of the Queen. Thank God Gwen had prepped you on that because she knew all about that. No, but that. let's just be realistic about what happened here because I think <laughs> it's worth unpicking. This is after I'd been over to cover the royal wedding, <laughs> a flight which I'd undertaken straight from stepping off stage for a Chat 10 show in Brisbane that turned out to be one of those <laughs> poorly timed things that nearly made me have a heart attack. Anyway, when I got back, you were like, oh, you're a royal expert now. And then there was some story in the paper about how I think Brandis had been presented. George Brandis, the new High Commissioner to the UK, had been presented to the Queen. And someone had taken a really clever photograph of what the Queen was doing with her handbag. And somebody, like at the Times or somewhere in the UK, wrote this column about the Queen's special language with her handbag and how when she was ready to finish with a guest, she'd put her handbag on the table and then... So the sort of query or whatever would come in and say, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Brandis, you know, we'll see you out now. <laughs> anyway, so Gwen, who would read this story, was telling us about it and I think it was when we did, went and did that show in Orange or something and you locked away in your little ginger nut that <laughs> um, that there was this interesting thing about handbags and the Queen and then when the George Brandis story happened, you're like, "Oh, handbags, Queen, Crab knows all about that," <laughs> and you rang me and you're like, "Are you? Can you come in to like do a thing on 7:30 tonight? We're just talking about, you know, um, and you know all about the Queens and the ha- the Queen and the handbags and stuff." And I'm like, "What are you on about?" And she's like, "No, no, no, I know you know about this. Like, so can you can you be in a makeup at like 4:30 and then blah blah blah." I'm like, "Ah, uh, I well, guess." I do remember I was rail rating you. Yeah, you were
1: like, I, "I I don't actually." Yeah, you do. You do. You told me about. Just I've booked you in for makeup, and I was yeah. just like, "Rail." Yeah, See you
0: there. And I'm like, I just, what? Okay. I mean, I can, I'm sure I can poke around. And so in the intervening hour or two, I went and did some poking around and like, oh, yeah, this is quite interesting. Went in there and did, you know, some two-minute spot about the Queen. I mean, really, you must have had a slow news night. And then so uh, Gwen was watching the show and was like, wow, this is literally what I was talking about the other night. And you just got mixed, mixed up as to who the expert was. It turns out it was Gwen anyway. <laughs> Chapter 28 million in my life as a fraud and yours is a complete bulldozer. (laughs) That
1: was so hilarious when Gwen's (laughs) text is Lady going, sales, you bloody idiot. I was the one that told you.
0: (laughs) Oh, that was absolute gold. Well, I have just finished reading a brand new book by an Australian writer, quite a remarkable woman. She's a doctor, but also, I don't know, she seems massively busy. She's got a hundred kids, well, three, I think, and columnist and also Um, a hand surgeon because of course. (laughs) Anyway, her name is uh, Neela Janakiramanan. Janakiramanan is my pronunciation, which I hope is correct. And she's written this book called The Registrar and it's incredibly gripping, right? First of all, it's set in a hospital in Sydney, doesn't sort of mention which one. I hope it's in Sydney. I think it's in Sydney. It's in Australia anyway. It's a big kind of training hospital and her principal character has just become a surgical registrar and so got through med school and has been invited to train as a surgeon. And it's partly about the transition into this new specialty that is insanely demanding. And it's the, the great bulk of the book is about what happens to her when she's on this registrar rounds, and it's really revelatory about how hospitals work. Obviously, the writer Neela is um, has first-hand experience of this. But what is unusual about it, particularly for somebody who's, I guess, trained in a scientific discipline, is that it's written in this taught yet kind of emotionally intelligent style it is i mean your heart just beats faster wow as you live the rounds and the incredible demands that are placed on quite a junior person and there's this in the first chapter she's a she's turned up at this new hospital with a whole bunch of new registrars and trainees who are all starting on the same day and she turns up and like there's no um she's got a beeper somewhere but she doesn't know where it is and so by the time she finds it she's missed 20 messages (sighs) and there's like surgeons screaming and emergency (laughs) departments screaming so it's like full like in over your head straight away but also across all of these departments and specialties all of these new people are starting on the same day so they don't have and she just she writes I wonder if people in hospital like patients know that that is not a good day to arrive needing urgent attention like it's sort of like it's got that kind of behind the scenes horrific thrill of you know those that sort of wave of books that came out about like, you know, chefs talking about what really happens in restaurants. restaurants kitchens. Yeah, you're yeah. Talking, yeah. yeah, it's it's a remarkable book. And mm. it also, it's interesting because it makes you think about how we fund and structure our, health, our hospital system in particular, and the extent to which it relies on like groups of quite young and overstressed people who are exhausted Mm. and who every day have this kind of like there is too much work for anyone to do at what point do I go home and try and sleep Mm. because there's never a point at which everything is finished and everything is done and now I can leave because there's always just and even her account of the the personal dynamics between different departments. Like there's this moment where there's a woman that she's dealing with who has got a lump on her leg and it is a sarcoma. It's, you know, this woman's obviously has gone from being a healthy person to someone who's about to realise how very sick she is. And the main character is like calling somebody in radiology to like, we need to have this scanned and we need to have it analysed. And the radiologist kind of calls her back and for that moment, those are the two people in the world who know exactly what's going to happen to this woman. She doesn't even know because they haven't told her. But there's this huge kind of responsibility apart from the physical work of sorting out all these systems. But then it sort of comes with this great emotional burden of Mm. being a person who knows more about the patient than the patient knows and how Mm. and under what circumstances you equalise that level of understanding. It's just... Mm. I found it exhausting to read, but it's it's so well told and paced and it's so obviously authentic because of um, the writer's lived experience that I just think it's a really important book. And I should say that towards the end of the book, there is a kind of like a suicide event that occurs that really kind of punched me in the solar plexus um, just because of my own life this year and with my brother and everything. So I was just like, oh, God. But it sort of wasn't, I mean, the whole book is so, I don't know, it really grabs you Mm. just because of the sense of anxiety and drama. And I don't know, I was just immediately filled with just fear for all of these, particularly over the last year, people trying to train to do a great job of a really hard job under even more difficult circumstances than than usual. We
1: surely in this country have to do a major, major rethink of what's going on with public health. Right. Because it's not working. And and too often, I think, we have people in leadership say things like, um, we've got one of the greatest health systems in the world. Yeah. And at what point do we stop kind of, Claiming that when everyone's experience, whether you're working in the system mm. or availing yourself of the system, would demonstrate that that is not actually the case. And that the,
0: you know, we always kind of. And the extent con- to which it is, is due to like really unreasonable demands exactly. on people who are a finite resource.
1: And you look at, we had lots of stories on 730 last year about. Um, hospitals in states where there'd be ambulance ramping when they had no COVID cases. Yeah, like so, it's not you can't just go. Oh, it's a COVID thing. It's a situational thing. It's not. It's a mm. system thing where the system is not working. And the other thing I think that we do in Australia is we go, oh well, we're not America. We've got universal health care care here. Actually, when you goes everyone would know to specialists or whatever and you see how little you get back from medicare mm. what you're out of pocket on when you see how long waiting lists are for services in um public hospitals that are not urgent when you see if you have private health insurance how few things it actually covers we really don't have universal health care rich mm. people get heaps better health health care yep. in this country than poor
0: people and we haven't even started talking about uh, mental health yet which is a oh, you know, well, total vast case anyway well, Neela jennica has done uh, I, I think it's just a super public service with writing this book. I don't know how she managed to do it, but it's explained to me more clearly than any news reporting than I've read about like what it, what life is like right. in one of those big training hospitals. Right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, interesting. Great okay, that book. Good. really great book. Recommend. Can
1: I just rattle through quickly a heap of things that I've watched binge watched? Yeah. Um, oh, since, for sure. Because yeah. it's been so long. Because we've had since we've done a pod where we've talked about this kind of stuff. Okay. Girls 5 Ever, the new season. Oh, new season. Yep. I didn't love it as much as the first season, but it was still enjoyable. Yeah. Two things that I know that you've watched, which I've only just got around to. um, I'm halfway through The Dropout. Oh. Which is the one about Theranos (laughs) and Elizabeth Holmes and that fraud. I mean,
0: I'm just watching it all the time just going – why? (laughs) It's like going to the zoo. I love it. I mean, it's just, and I think I've been, I've had an unhealthy obsession with Elizabeth Holmes. And I think, you know, I've, I've listened to both the podcasts. Yeah, I read the book, you know, Bad Blood, which is John Carreyrou's book about it. So
1: so can you answer this question for me? Because I feel like I'm not getting to the bottom of it, watching Mm. the TV show. There's got a trying to explain her motivation as being that she kind of wanted to be like Steve Jobs, he was a hero and Mm. that's what kind of drove her and she just didn't want to kind of admit that she didn't have an idea that was going to work Yeah. and then it was kind of like it was in for a penny,
0: in for a pound. Yeah, yeah. Is is that what was? Well, I think, yes, I think that the main thing about her mindset and it's very faddish, very Steve Jobs, I want to be like him, and she's obviously a very, Um, chimeric sort of character, like highly ambitious and would mould herself to appeal to whomever she needed to appeal to. But I think the big thing is that that's a real Silicon Valley ideology that you like move fast, break things, spend a huge amount of money before you start making a profit. You start doing it before you're absolutely convinced you've got the model right because the market will sort of teach you how to fix your model. Like that is a really – significant and popular and in many respects, well, in some respects, successful way of doing business when you start up a disruptive technology. And she was trying to disrupt, you know, the pathology universe by charging less and being faster on blood testing. And she employed that same approach, which was, well, let's just get out there. We haven't quite sorted out the machines yet, but like will, you know, get all this investment. And she had this incredible board with, you know, all sorts of former yeah Henry of state. Yeah, Henry yeah. um, But the, the the crucial difference is it's one thing when you're doing, you know, ride-sharing or technology or this amazing app or whatever, but if you're providing a health service then whether or not you've got the technology right is really significant yeah. because and they're the people who ended up kind of giving evidence in the, the trial when it finally happened was like people who got like what got told that they had cancer when they didn't or Ugh. um got told that they would had a miscarriage when they hadn't Ugh. you know like that it's just wow i mean Ugh. you can't do it with healthcare because you can't like there are rules around oh. oh god reliability when you're providing a health service and that's kind of what brought her on and stuck i mean i think the reason as i've said before that i'm completely obsessed with there is i i just People who are shameless really fascinate me. Oh, I just—it's yeah. quite an amazing thing to watch.
1: I think I, I googled her the other day. I'm just checking. I think she hasn't been sentenced yet. Right, I think so she's been coming up. she was
0: found guilty on a bunch of counts and yeah. not guilty on some. I
1: think it's coming up um, later this year. But Sunny Balwani,
0: I she... who was her ex-partner, he's and been he's, sentenced. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, it's also just this sort of amazing story of just where does money go? You know, oh. like just this. Extraordinary amounts of money, some and, of which just went on, you know, flying her around. And and, rich
1: people, venture capitalists, and what drives them to invest, and yeah. how much it's just like, oh yeah, I like the cut of your jib. So here, have what
0: a bunch you know. of boobs.
1: Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um. The other thing I've watched that I know you've already watched and I love is the Letdown. Mm-hmm. I'm so late coming to that. Oh, it's but the greatest series. It's so so well done, and it so captures those. that period when you have a baby in that immediate aftermath um I suspect it's a comedy if you haven't had a baby and just a straight documentary if you have (laughs) like I those characters say and do things that I swear are just literally straight out of my mouth it's amazing my kids absolutely love it strangely enough and they like watching it with me I don't I'm not quite sure why I think it's because they like the insight into what they might have been like when they were babies in fact one of them said to me one night after we watched an episode mum was it was it that stressful with us? <laughs> and I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's. I'm just absolutely
0: adoring it. It's so well done. Oh, just even like, you know, their expl- exploration of, because the story is about, you know, a couple that have a baby and, you know, just it's. All of the normal things that happen when you've got a little baby, like, oh, this baby doesn't sleep. or yeah. And then you go to mother's group or whatever and everybody else seems to be doing fine and yeah. you've accidentally pissed yourself and, you know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's your baby.
1: It's really good. The other two things I've watched, um, I watched, there's a new season of The Split. I can't remember if you watched that when it came out. It's a British show about a group of family lawyers, um, three sisters and their mother. Oh, no, I haven't. Um, it's... It, the latest, se- if you like the first season or the second, I can't remember how many out there are. You'll like this; it's kind right. of more of the same. Right. Um, the other thing I've watched that I really, really loved of have saved the best to last—is the new season of Borgen. Oh,
0: wow! That seems to be really, really grabbing people. It was
1: excellent um i mean that whole all of those seasons have been excellent but it's feels very very contemporary like they've yeah, put their finger on some really contemporary issues so it's about oil the kind of political premise um is now the foreign minister different woman's the yep. prime minister and there's a issue with oil they found a major oil Pocket in Greenland. Right. And so, um, who knew? The, the Greenlanders want to drill it yeah. because it's a source of wealth yeah. for their country. And they Norway. No, hang on. it's Denmark, isn't it? What country is it set in? Norway. Denmark. Denmark.
0: No, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, it's Danish. Yeah, it's like Denmark doesn't oh want God. them to. All of these smug Scandinavian countries are the same. Like, hi, <laughs> we have a sovereign wealth fund and a language you can't speak. Like, don't <laughs> sod off. Den- with your paid parental leave schemes, <laughs> forget about it. We're not interested. Denmark. We've got sunshine. You Denmark- losers.
1: Denmark's like no, no. Because you've got clean design. Denmark's like no, no, no. We're transitioning away from fossil <laughs> right. fuels, yeah. and so you're not allowed to do that. Oh, they're okay. like, well, how about you just go and you know screw yourself. And so they're the Greenlanders are building a relationship with the Chinese. The oh Americans want the Danes to mm-hmm. not. Assist that, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so it's got this kind of really contemporary geopolitical sort of issue bubbling away. And then we're also seeing the chickens come home to roost, with you'll remember in season one, Bugita's marriage breaks up because she's workaholic, basically. And then the family always comes second to work. So now her kids are grown up. Her daughter lives in New York. Her son is around, but kind of much closer to the Mm -hmm. father. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing the kind of. I um, liked him. Yeah. You're seeing the consequences of her having put her work first for her entire life. She still has like good relationships with her kids and stuff, but she's kind of contemplative of, okay, where are things at? Mm -hmm. So, and then um, Katrina Fonsmark is now the news director at the News Channel, but there's a lot of difficulties because she's getting trolled on Twitter the entire time. Oh, I see. Um, She is not very good on the kind of woke issues that get you cancelled constantly. So there's some very, very interesting sort of contemporary plots. And then, of course, the woman who's um, Birgitta is just, she I is next level. Next level amazing. So that was just delicious.
0: Oh, God, I have, I've got that to look forward to actually. Um,
1: well, now, here's what I want to ask you about. And This is why I've mm. gone into the box set stuff because you had it on the list and so I want to
0: know if you've watched it, The Staircase. Oh, yeah. Okay, I've not watched it yet. So what's the – So you've watched the original documentary, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. So it's been dramatised. Right. Which actually, it's not that many things where you watch a documentary and then you watch uh, you watch a dramatised yeah. retelling of it. And like the – The story is, of course, of this family, husband and wife, it's their each their second marriage. I think there's stepchildren everywhere and they've got a lovely house. They're out the back having a drink late at night and wife says, I'm tired, I'm going to bed, goes inside and then next thing you know she's at the bottom of the stairs in a pool of blood. The husband's on the phone to emergency. Oh, my God, my, my wife has fallen down the stairs. She dies. And then the investigation into well was she pushed was did she fall then this backstory emerges about the husband it's not the first wife of his that's died in a stair fall <laughs> and it's a true story of course oh. I mean, it's the most and i suppose i mean the the original documentary came out oh, oh God, a long time 15 ago years ago yeah. i don't know and it it was the first Serialized documentary that I ever remember. I remember my friend Heather saying to me in London, You have to watch this series. It is unbelievable.
1: It was riveting.
0: Right. So it was the first of the kind of, you know, Making a murderer, or like those sort of incredibly gripping serials that were documentaries, and that revealed the first one. Oh, it was one of the most gobsmacking. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and then all this stuff about the like some of the stepchildren. Oh, oh, it's just there's so much bizarre detail, but also, it was one of the first documentaries to be made with the participation of the accused. Yeah, and it's because, and he's quite a weird guy he was contacted by this French film company just saying, oh, we are looking to make a crime documentary and you you seem to be a really interesting case. And he's like, oh, yeah, that could be good for me. Great, come on in. So the whole time there's this French documentary crew sort of pacing around. And And so I guess that was all evident in the, I mean, you saw in the original documentary what the French documentary crew made. What you see in the uh in the series that is dramatized is how they got to meet the French documentary right. crew. Like so oh, it's great. sort of it's sort of like taking a step back from the documentary. And the husband is played by Colin Firth, which is tremendous because he's got exactly the same, he's got exactly the right surface charm that then begins to peel back and you're like, well, wait, 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 what? And then you did, sorry, what? And Tony Collette is the wife. Right. So she's in it a lot because there's a lot that kind of leads up to the, yeah, oh, it's great. It's really, really really good. good. Mm. Other
1: than the reveal of the first wife, which was gobsmacking, the other moment that I really remember from that was after that reveal, the defence lawyer, who's actually quite a likeable guy in the doco, (laughs) he's... Sits back and uh, he's just gobsmacked when this comes oh, out. Yeah, and he says to the documentary crew something like, "Well, I guess you've got your documentary now." And <laughs> you can see that his brain's ticking like, "Oh
0: my god, right line the wall access to this." Ugh. And then the guy's like, "Yeah, sure, but that's not relevant." You know, my first oh, wife I just didn't and think Beth it was relevant like, to yeah, mention.
1: <laughs> like, oh my god, yeah, that was. And because Americans give so much access to their courtrooms, oh. you're watching the whole thing play out then in court, I mean, it's. Just the most astonishing and paved the way for so many, you know, people who've attempted to, in the same way Crime Podcasts, you know, opened up that. was Serial, yeah. yeah. The Staircase was kind of very influential.
0: I'll speak about po- Crime pod- Podcasts. I can't even say it. Um, I've been listening to The Teacher's Trial. Oh, yeah. The, the, um, the Australian's podcast, Hedley Thomas's It's like the second edition of The Teacher's, Teacher's Pet, Pet, which I just hadn't realised how enormously globally. Massive. Yeah. yeah. Huge, yeah. right? So the teacher's trial is the coverage of the trial, but Hedley Thomas is not massively involved in it because he's not he's he's a witness, so he yeah, can't right. sort of sit through the trial because right. he's a witness, right. and there's a limit to how much he can participate. So the 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 teacher's trial podcast starts with an explanation that he is sitting in his house in Queensland. Not, not watching pa- the trial. Right. <laughs> like right. which must be quite a bizarre situation to be in. And I think oh, there's be difficult. so many interesting questions now about how this explosion in crime podcasts intersects with the with the justice system. Oh yeah. And one of the most fascinating parts of the teacher's trial, which is um narrated by Claire Harvey, who is, you know, a long-term News Limited writer who has, I've got to say, the most beautiful voice for podcasting. It's just I could just listen to that. I mean, I know Claire and I don't know, maybe because when I think about her I think about who she is. I just have never just listened to her voice before. But it's just a great voice. I she does a really good job. She's sort of like she's channeling between, okay, so they're putting out a podcast after each week of the trial. So she's like, oh, here's what happened this week. And then she's got like David Murray and a couple of journos that are following the trial. So she talks to them and then she'll kind of bring in Headley, but in a kind of, you know, wearing a mask and gloves kind of thing. Like right. you know, they're asking him to comment on things from the podcast, not necessarily what's oh, happening on the trial. God, like, that's a right. tricky line to walk. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a really compelling podcast. Oh, I'm, I must really, have I'm okay. really enjoying it. I mean it's it sort of gives you a different angle on some of the stuff that you know from the podcast. Um and it also you can really see them trying to do the right thing by the legal process, even though it's really apparent that, you know, the judge is kind of like, what the hell with this? You know, like there's the reservations that the justice system has about this it, sort of whole culture of crime podcast.
1: Quite rightly. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Like it's there's very, this, very
1: tricky. There's this yeah. bit
0: where the judge, I think it's the judge, oh, maybe, maybe it's the one of the counsel are just really annoyed about how in the um, sort of stand first of the podcast, they use a a quote from one of the um, people they've interviewed and they're like, well, that quote's out of context. Right. But it's sort of part of a mashup. You know, when you start a podcast, there's like little grabs from like and this is, yeah. you know to set the scene. It's sort of like the, you know, previously kind of yeah. thing. Um, it, and so at one point, Hedley Thomas has to explain that that's what you do. I mean, you, it's sort of like a headline. You can't capture the whole thing. Yeah. You kind of use little grabs to denote what's probably coming up, you know.
1: The thing too, and um so let's set aside talk of this case, right? So what I'm saying is in no way a commentary mm-hmm. on that matter. Police and, you know, courts and hospitals, institutions, who you name it, Often don't like journo's investigating mm-hmm. and podcasting the way Headley does it is just another form of yeah, investigative sure. journalism. Yeah. There've been that many stories over the years that Headley Thomas has done that have led to major changes yep. or major revelations about things that, um, like I'm thinking of the Muhammad Hanif case, yep. um, you know, years ago now with the AFP. Now the AFP would have been enraged that Headley mm. was. Sticking his nose yep. into that. Yep. What he uncovered in that case was a grave injustice. Yeah. And so often, you know, investigative journalists get pushed back. Yeah. Because, you know, they're they about are. to
0: upset the apple cart in yeah, a big way. that's right. Like that one, the most recent one called Shandy's Story, which right. led to this the exposure of this incredible flaw in the DNA testing yeah, kind of um, absolutely, system. Yeah. In like, there was a in whole Queensland. lab that yeah. was just like not working. Yeah. And I mean, That is extraordinary, hugely inconvenient, but also true. So Headley
1: went to a press conference by Anastasia Palaszczuk and it was just fantastic to see a senior journo front up at a press conference and just ask in a polite but very persistent way relevant questions. Because, you know, I think the public got a bit of a taste in COVID sometimes of how press conferences run and they're often not very impressive for various reasons, one of which that, the politicians that tend to be dismissive, mm. contemptuous, intimidating, they refuse to take questions. And so when you get someone like Headley, who's yeah. just not going to take no front an answer and just pushes and has done the homework and the mm. research and whatnot, mm. it was really, really impressive. Remember
0: that um COVID presser where Scott Morrison called at very short notice at Kirribilli? Oh, yeah, um, with Anne Connolly. To, right. Yep. And it was to release the findings of the Aged Care Royal Commission. Yep. It was like a. 10-minute press conference nobody had a copy like it was just yep. sort of like here's the you know I'm going to verbally <laughs> announce the you know the findings and then we're, we're like me and my health minister standing next to me are going to then retire and think about it or whatever and it was one of those things that politicians do this a lot where they call a press conference that is uh, at short notice so if you can scramble there quickly it won't be with the person that is most expert in the subject matter but Anne Connolly managed who is you know probably the preeminent journalist oh. in Australia who knows about aged care. Yeah. Um, managed to make it there. And just her questions and the response were just for me one of the most memorable moments of of the last term in government. It was, yeah. Well she, she was
1: so Anne was working for 730 that day. And mm. so we had a conversation before mm. she went. And I've had had this conversation as well with other members of the team. And it's like Anne knows her stuff, but it, it is really intimidating to front mm-hmm. up at an event yeah. and then just keep hammering. Yeah. Like it's socially very, very awkward. It's awkward, yeah. And so sometimes with um, people on the team, I just give them a good pep talk about you're there on behalf what of all of those people. Steel springs. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember Anne and I had had a talk and we kind of had discussed, all right, well, these are the things and you're not going to get along with the report and da-da-da-da. And then I remember I was watching it at home and I was just, Dying with admiration yeah. and pride for Anne and how much she knew and how she just stood her ground and yeah. kept asking questions in a really
0: polite way. Super polite. Against this kind of
1: because he was to he was doing her. all of the
0: tricks like no. You're wrong. Like the other she's like, no, I think I'm right, actually. No, no, no. it was fantastic. And then, well, I'm the prime minister. He even did that one. I'm the prime minister. This is my health minister. She will be she making the decisions.
1: Did such a great public service that day. Yeah. The other reporter on the team I was so proud of was um, Paul Farrell when he went yeah. to Gladys Berejiklian. The one where she said, "Can you please respect this press conference?" Yeah. And again, he knew his material and he stood his ground. And it's a great lesson, I think, to is Like these people are paid by Australian taxpayers and. They don't get to just dismiss, you know, yeah. questions. And if you're asking something that is a legitimate issue on behalf of the public, that's what you're going to use to just steal yourself to keep, you know, keep asking those questions. Now, um, I hate to draw this to a close, but um, I've got a long lunch I need to get oh to because <laughs> that's how my appalling. life rolls these days. Yeah,
0: absolutely appalling. I, is there anything else I need to mention? Let me just think. Oh, yeah, just quickly, yep. super fast. Because I just want to put you off your lovely lunch, <laughs> you fraud. A book called Good Arguments by yes. a really interesting writer called Bo So, who is probably like, he used to write for the Financial Review. He's sort of a you know, brain the size of a planet person, um, is based in the US most of the time, but he's a like champion debater and he's written a book called Good Arguments, which is about how to disagree with people. Oh, and like, great. so it's, Gosh, it's such a thoughtful book and I remember I kind of met him because I was on an episode of The Drum with him and I just was really impressed by the way that his brain worked. Like he wasn't a particularly didactic person but really um, you could see him thinking and revising and then, you know, sometimes in those sorts of shows you have people who turn up and say, oh, I need to say this and I need to say this and they don't bend or change. But actually I was watching him have this sort of thoughtful exchange and changing his mind and anyway um I thought this person with an interesting brain we had a coffee a little while later and he said he was working on this book about how to disagree productively and and now it's out and it's really good oh. and like and it's partly a story about his own experience um as a migrant as well and like starting at an Australian school and being different from other people and kind of he includes a lot of that stuff about his early life and you can see his brain kind of responding to the surroundings and how do I make this work and what's my strategy for coping with this and that and this and he kind of fell into debating and found that it was kind of a landscape that he could inhabit with his kind of brain. So it's kind of a a little bit like a memoir but the most interesting thing is the structure of his explanation of the difference between unproductive arguments and productive arguments Ah. and the way that and the different kinds it's a little bit about debating technique as well i don't know it's a funny book it's just it's a terrific book i think and super useful because you think about arguments that you've had as you're reading it you think about arguments that you've had or you think about the sort of most common form of arguments that people have these days which is shouting at people you don't know on social media you know and it it i found it useful because i was able to think of the Ways that I disagree with people and how I handle it, and I, I really, I really approve of his formalization of these concepts that I think for most of us just buzz around in our heads and uh, feel like a feeling. To have these things confirmed in a structural way, I found really, really comforting. Actually,
1: okay, what's it called?
0: It's called Good Arguments. Good Arguments. It's quite newly out. I'll look out for it. Do. All right, toots, I'll see you soon. Enjoy that lunch. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Fraud. <laughs>